You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. I was looking forward to this conversation, and I and I loved it. I'm talking to Yael Schoenbrunn, who's a clinical psychologist specializing in treating relationships. She is a co-host uh, of the uh, Psychologist Off the Clock podcast, an assistant professor at Brown University, and a parent of three. And her new book is called Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage over- Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Sean Brun, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to speak with you. I'm really psyched to talk to you. So the caregiving space is something that is very important to me, both as a parent, but also in our work, having built improv-based caregiving programs. And I remember being surprised and delighted to learn that in the earliest forms of civilization, caregiving was a task distributed throughout the tribe and not something that was foisted 90 to 100% on women. And you note in your book that your dad was actually raised on a kibbutz, which also features a kind of distributed caregiving. Can you talk to how both your parents' experiences informed your work in the space you are in now? Oh, wow. What a great place to start. Um, I love this. Thank you. What a great question. So for those of you who haven't heard of a kibbutz, these are communities that are found in Israel that are based in socialist and Zionist ideals. And they are kind of like Plato's Republic, where children, the caregiving models that children are raised as a village, as a community. And they did it in a, a pretty provocative way in terms of how we typically think about parenting, which is that the kids were raised in children's houses away from their biological or 
or even adoptive parents in houses with same age peers. So my father was born to, by healthy delivery in a hospital. A week later, he was placed into a children's house with other infants and taken care of by a kibbutz nanny, which is called a metapelet in Hebrew. And he saw his parents every day. And in fact, his mother nursed him. She would come to the house every few hours to nurse. But the model was so that women wouldn't be yoked to the domestic sphere, to stuck with caregiving and domestic responsibilities, that they could participate more equally. And that caregiving would be kind of like it was done in pre-modern times, done in a more village kind of setting where everybody contributed. My mother, however, who was raised in a more traditional setting by, you know, living with her parents in uh, an apartment in Israel. And um, what is so interesting is that my dad actually really loved his upbringing. He saw it very fondly, but there's a lot of debate around that model because kids were separated from their parents And at the same time, there's something so lovely about it because the burden really was very deliberately taken away from being exclusively on mother figures. So there's something really lovely about it, but also kind of off-putting. And it begs this question of how can we distribute the care and the burden more equally without creating a separation between kids and their parents? That probably wasn't what you were asking, but I just think it, it like opens up this whole line of question because the kibbutz model really tried to make what can often feel like an unfair burden on on mothers, one that was more equally and equitably distributed, but it did so in a way that didn't ultimately work out very well. And it was yeah. actually mothers who wanted to uh, dismantle that that model. That's interesting. Uh, as we were sort of talking before we started taping, like, I've been down this rabbit hole, both on on a personal level in my life, but also the guests I've had. And none of that was planned. So the classically, I'm like, <laughs> like every week in therapy, it's like another one popped up that is, is along these topics. And so I've been thinking about in my own family going back. So my parents, I'm older than you, and uh, uh, I'm the youngest of six boys. Uh, parents, very traditional. My mom didn't work. She was a domestic homemaker, but also like we weren't hanging out at home. It was like, get out. <laughs> and like, there was no cell phones. No one's checking on us. We're we're out and about. There was never a sense that we were, and we lived in the suburbs, a very safe uh, environment. Um, but, you know, we were, if I think about how I was raised, I was raised by my family, but I was also raised by my buddy's Dave's parents. <laughs> and, and I spent most of my time in his basement. So, you know, that existed or or my own brothers, other people. And, and it became that sort of village. And then what I really appreciated about this book, because it's kind of unlike anything I've read with regard to parenting books, which frankly, I read a long time ago when my kids were little, uh, to social psychology, behavioral science, which I'm immersed in now. Uh, but in the sense that you looked at the model of both your parents and then you really specifically looked in like this sort of like um, working parenthood. So you're both going to work and that was the thing that was going to happen. You're both going to parent. And then what you sort of admit, research, talk about is that is an uneasy alliance. Uh, it sounds like it was for you. And I don't know how much of this was sort of me search, uh, but, uh, but, but for, for many All people, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you for admitting it. So, yeah. So, so you, your, your professional and your, and your personal sort of combine and, and when did, when did that happen? Is that before the degree? Is that, you know, we're in the life cycle? <laughs> yeah. Well, so I got my 
PhD and was on my postdoc when I became a parent. So I was, I was sort of done with my training, but like uh, just about to become a professor. Perfect. What's interesting about what you're pointing out is that the kibbutz and, you know, my, so I was raised like you by a stay-at-home parent and a full-time working father. And in my mind, that was sort of uh, uh, the traditional model that I saw, I actually talk about this in the book, but my mother was an unhappy stay-at-home parent. My mm-hmm. father was a very happy working parent. So I thought to myself, you know, I'm living in the modern age and I can do it. You know, I have the privilege of pursuing a professional life. I would rather be happy than unhappy. I'll do the working thing. What I didn't realize until after my father passed away is just how much the kibbutz history colored my perception. And it's actually something I'm working on right now. This is sort of my next project. Because I think sort of outside of my conscious awareness, this idea of how important it was for women and men, because this was built into the design of the kibbutz. It was sort of like this very deliberate utopian design Mm -hmm. where they were going to create opportunities for women and men and children to have these really like life nourishing ingredients of meaningful work, really deep community, equality and justice. It did not work out perfectly, but it was embedded in the model that it shouldn't be the case that women only are trapped in the domestic sphere. What ended up being oppressive is that women couldn't participate as much as they wanted to in the domestic sphere. And that was a bit of what I experienced after becoming a parent at age 30 on my postdoc is that I had this plan to really stay engaged as a professional. And it turned out that it was really painful for me to be apart from my infant and to give him over to childcare. In my own mind, my, my, the story that I generated was that part of why it was so uncomfortable was that the people who took care of my child while I worked were paid daycare providers. And oh, if only it could have been the village. But I actually, Mm -hmm. upon more reflection, I think it would have been that way no matter what, that this is something that's just embedded in the human psyche that we want to participate deeply in caregiving. And we also want to participate meaningly in public contributions. Of course, not everybody wants to do that in the same level, but you know, Freud has this great quote that love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. And I think that manifests differently depending on your circumstances and your temperament and all those kinds of things. But it is true that we're pulled in different directions. And that's not a bad thing. That is just what it is to be human. So there's an inherent discomfort in that. And and we sort of have to be realistic about where we live right now, especially those of us in sort of urban environments. Um, you note in the book that, quote, dual working parent households increased from 25% in 1960 to 60% in 2012 among married couples with children. We're 10 years from that. I can't imagine that's gone lower. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of there was there has been a lot of movement during the pandemic with women moving out of the workforce and and now moving back in now that the pandemic is at its tail end. And of course, the workforce itself is changing and there's a lot more part time jobs and sort of gig economy. So I think how we define work has changed. But I think even if you don't work in a more traditional capacity, even if you work part time or again in the gig economy, and even if you don't work outside of the home, most people inhabit multiple demanding roles. So if you live a typical adult life, you probably are a friend and work in some capacity or volunteer or do some kind of caregiving or have a pet or have other kinds of responsibilities. And so we are pulled in lots of different directions. And for the vast majority of Americans these days, it is as a caregiver and as a some kind of uh, employment capacity. So I don't know if this is true for you as it is for me, but when I think of my my many selves, 
Uh, and I think about my work self and what it means to be successful at work. That's a very specific sort of channel. When I think about myself as a human being, sort of writ large, this idea of how I want to flourish, that's a, a specific kind of self. I don't think I've ever, I, I, I think I put parenting in its own sort of like tube, when in reality, of course, it's part of all of those things. And you write in the book, quote, how we think about and respond to very real challenges can make a huge difference in our experience in the world, how we relate to others, and how skillfully we navigate our life's journeys. The same is true for working parenthood, end quote. So that's sort of placing this like, no, 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 this like this stuff's all connected. And by disconnecting it, you're potentially tearing to shreds the kind of stuff that makes all of it worthwhile in each of those areas. Well, I'm hoping that I'm doing a yes and because I do think that what you're saying is true. We we often think about the demands of our roles in this sort of competitive uh space like that there's this scarcity hypothesis if i'm working that cuts into my parenting time if i'm parenting it cuts into what i can contribute to work and there's truth to that right we only have so much energy there's only so many hours in the day and we get fatigued and and there is a competition for finite resources that is true and it is also true that there are ways that when we're working there are benefits to our parenting and when we're parenting there are benefits to our working and that part of how the benefit comes about is that they kind of leak into each other in really positive ways. So I like to think about it sort of the the picture that comes to mind is the symbol for yin, yin and yang. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they kind of wrap around each other, but also the eye of the fish, right, is uh, a part of the side of the the fish that it's opposing. So mm-hmm. you kind of capture some of your work skills, for example, as you're a parent. So, f- you know, for you and I, we talk to people, we think analytically, we interview people. I also co-host a, I co-host a podcast. I don't host it. And all of those kinds of skills actually are quite helpful in the parenting space because I can ask curious questions of my kids. I can really think deeply about what challenges I'm having as a parent with them or what challenges they're encountering in whatever developmental phase they're at. Similarly, in whatever caregiving role or or just relationship role you have, you're gaining skills, you're gaining patience and compassion. And for most of us, those kinds of skills feed very naturally and beneficially back into our work roles. And so while they kind of inhabit separate silos, on the one hand, they also can really enrich each other. And when we realize that both are true, we can be more deliberate about how we allow the enrichment to come into each role. We can pursue it, in other words. Yeah, I think my wife and I are lucky in a certain way in terms of where we work. So Anne's worked at Second City for 36 years. I've been here 34. So when we had our son, Nick, um, first of all, you know, in utero, he saw a lot of inappropriate comedy. Um, (laughs) I'm uh, sure that benefited it all. Oh, no, no, it totally did. And and also got to be seeing some world-class, you know, uh, uh, comic performers. Amazing. Uh, yeah. But then it was like the way we found this tragedy and, you know, was the artistic director of the training center for about 10 years. And we had Nick and we were taking him to like, we had to sign up for summer camp. So we know our theater friends at Looking Glass with David Schwimmer's company took him there and we're leaving his final performance. And, and sort of it's like, God, if just Second City had this, it would be so much easier because I just take him into work. And I'm like, and you run the training center. Like, <laughs> and and at that point, Summer was our slowest time. So literally the reason we started uh, Second City Summer Camps, which are thousands and thousands of students now, was because we kind of wanted a cheap place 
for daycare <laughs> during the summer. Um, but it, it had this, this other positive. And I think for myself too, bringing in those perspectives as a parent is not always unlike how one, like my wife is an educator teaching, talking to students or myself to young actors or, or performers or anyone. And I don't mean that to sort of uh, make someone feel small. It's, it's really more of like, how do I become better at nurturing an individual to do the best in their career, which is my role as a leader. When I'm a leader that I think that is anyone's role is, is how can you get everyone to do their best? Um, so I think that if you, if you have the opportunity or have really good bosses who sort of see that, you can bring that skill set um, into your workplace and vice versa. You're going to find work techniques that maybe we certainly know this in terms of bringing improv into, into our home. That was a way of, of getting our kids to share conversation when they really didn't want to. Totally. I mean, I think you're landing on all these ways that the two roles enrich each other. And, and I'll just say, I mean, I'll just sort of pose this question. It'd be interesting to consider like how many of the authors and, and thought leaders that you've had on your podcast began to think about whatever their topic is because a different role, because like they saw the need, right? Just like you saw the need for childcare or because an additional role came in and they were like, oh, I see this from a new perspective. And oh, I I have a way to fill this gap or to respond to this thing that nobody's been talking about that seems like a universal experience. I think that our two roles or our, our multiple demanding roles help us freshen our perspective and see what needs to be addressed in in novel ways. And, and that is such a huge gift. And I'll just say, like, I think about enrichment in three distinct pathways and you're sort of pointing to like the the transfer effect. It's sort of like you have an experience in one role and it turns out that that helps you to get more creative or to um I don't know, uh, get more passionate about something in the other role. And I think that that's really natural. So I talk about that in creativity and rest in subtractive uh, effects, which I know you had Lady Klotz on your show before. And I talk about a bit about that in my book as well. Okay. So that, and then the second way is what I call the stress buffering effect. So when we're having a really hard time in one role and we step into another role, it gives us an opportunity to have a positive experience that can counterbalance. So for example, if I have a teenager and they're lipping off to me, I can go to work and have a positive interaction. Or if my boss is a total jerk, I can go home and hopefully get a cuddle with my kid or my partner. So that you can kind of buffer the stress in these very deliberate ways. And then the third way is what I call the additive effect. And that's this idea that happy lives tend to be meaningful and purposeful and or f- and filled with pleasant experiences. And the more roles we have to find that meaning, purpose, and pl- have pleasant experiences, the happier and more sustainable our happiness is going to be. And so again, if we can deliberately see the opportunity to use both roles to contribute to our happiness in this way, we can d- deliberately pursue it. And I do think that those experiences are actually available. And sorry, the other thing I wanted to mention is that Kelly, you and I have jobs that more naturally lend themselves to, oh, it's very obvious how parenting would help work and how work would help parenting. But what's amazing in the interviews that I did for my book, because I interviewed folks from a really wide variety of professional backgrounds and family situations invariably people were able to identify things. Like I interviewed an exotic dancer who said that exotic exotic dancing helped her talk to her customers in a more helpful way. She would say, honey, that's not how we behave in here. Mm -hmm. I talked to a cruise director who said that his kids helped him to real, like missing his kids helped him to realize that the purpose of his work was to help 
fund them and that eventually he would come back to them with these stories of the the cruise ship uh, passengers that he had served and and sort of re-engage with them in really delightful ways. And I, I think it really just begs this opportunity to ask ourselves, in what ways does my parenting help me to work better? And in what ways does my work help me to parent better? And to be curious about that, there probably are some ways they might not be inherently obvious, but once we can identify them, we can see that enrichment and capture it a little bit more deliberately. There's this other thing that you do in the book throughout, which I found really refreshing, which is, I mean, it's almost this muscular idea around, it's going to suck. Like, they, they, like the, we can't whitewash this or, or whatever the term it should be in, in, in terms of that, which is like, your tragedy will happen and, and people get sick and th- you, there's things that are going to make you unhappy. And, and while you can't change that, the one thing you have in control is your emotional response to it. Um, and that might be easier said than done. Uh, but it strikes me at the core of the book is you don't stop that. You're just like, nope, nope, I get it. I get it. But if you can look at this and, and, and reflect and it's, it's something again, you know, without having kids at home now, I, I, my wife and I often reflect on this, like, like we miss them. And it's not like it was a lot, a lot of fun. And even when they come back and stay for a while, it's like, nah, like, <laughs> like, please pick up your room or whatever it is. Uh, and, yeah, and kids but, are, kids are little heathens. They're such a little yeah. jerks sometimes, but we love them anyway. <laughs> we love them anyway. But th- that, that idea. And when you root it, and this was the thing that was sort of surprising to me and, and made me slow down reading the book is rooting it in a sense of values. Um, I don't think that, that most of, and again, this is not a traditional sort of parenting book because it's, 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 but I think that's what makes it uh, more rich because it's actually more in line with at least people like me and how we have to parent and live our working lives and, and move through this. But I want you to talk a bit about uh, values. Um, and I also really appreciate where you talked about values clarification is best done as a writing exercise. This is a thing that comes up constantly on the podcast, which is write it down. And that, that, that can be very, very big for people. And, and apparently not enough people do it. Yeah. There's something really powerful about writing, but we object to it because it just takes a little bit more effort. But this is sort of the key. It's powerful because it takes effort. And and I think that's the paradox is often the things that are hardest in our lives are the things that teach us the most. And I'm not condoning things. I, I hope right. I can swear. I think I can <laughs> on your podcast. Um, but but tragedies do happen and they are unavoidable. They're part of living a full, rich life. They're part of loving deeply. They're part of living because living is finite and that. Again, like I don't want to, I think the danger here is that I sometimes worry that I sound like I'm endorsing toxic positivity, but as I actually love the way that you framed it because I'm not, I'm saying actually lots of this sucks and we don't have to sugarcoat it. I think we can recognize it sucks. And this really is a yes. And because the suckiness has this other side, which usually means that there's something that you care deeply about. Um, I specialize in couples therapy in my therapeutic practice and what I'm constantly telling couples and the research is abundantly clear on this fact is that happy couples fight. Conflict is not a mark of, yeah. of ill health of a relationship. It's a mark of two people being in a close relationship. And so we shouldn't avoid it. We shouldn't sugarcoat it. We shouldn't stuff it because in fact, those 
responses to conflict and discomfort end up perpetuating. There's this great quote from Carl Jung who says, that which we persist, sorry, that which we resist persists and grows stronger. And this is actually a truth that's been found in laboratory science that when we try to not feel anxious and not feel sad in situations that prompt those emotional responses, those feelings grow stickier. We have like physiological responses that are stronger than if we allow for them and make meaning from them. And so it's not that we can control our emotional response, but we can acknowledge and accept and make space for whatever feelings come up in response to an unfortunate situation, a a tragically painful situation. And then we can reconnect to our values as a guide in how we move forward, behaviorally speaking. So let me say a little bit about, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. I I was going to say a bit about how we define values, just to sort of be clear about what that is. So values are different than goals. Goals, if the metaphor that is Uh, typically used in the kind of treatment that I practice, which is an evidence-based treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a great treatment. I love it. There's lots of great evidence-based treatments. This one for me is like the guidepost of my life. I just think it provides so many nice tidbits and inside or outside of therapy, I think it is abundantly useful. So think about the metaphor of climbing a mountain goal. The goal might be to get to the top of the mountain. So you can think in professional life, you know, it might be to get a a promotion in parenting life. It would be to launch healthy, independent, thriving kids. And we want to get there, but we don't have perfect control. Like you might not get that promotion no matter what you do. And your kids might falter because they might encounter struggles or they might've been born with genetic predispositions that make it challenging to thrive in the way that you anticipated that they would. That is not what we have control over. What we do have control over is how we take the journey moment to moment. And the context can shift from moment to moment. So say I decide that how I want to take the journey up that mountain is mindfully and like really enjoying the air and taking my the breath in. Or if I'm with somebody, connecting and chatting and catching up with them in the beautiful nature. But now what if a storm comes and it's no longer safe to just take my time or be there connecting to my friends? Then I might shift what I want to stand for moment to moment. And I might say, okay, pursuing safety or, or going back down. So it, the value, how I want to exist moment to moment represents the value, but the value that we prioritize depends a bit on who, what we most want to stand for and the context that we are living inside of. And so being able to clarify that for yourself as you move through your life's journey is this really helpful tool that you can call upon Even when things are painful, even when things absolutely suck, even when tragedy strikes, you get to choose what you stand for in that moment. And that's a very empowering thing that doesn't undo the pain, but in a sense helps us transcend it because it gives us something to stand for in that difficult moment. Such an improv thing, right? The the ability to sort of agilely respond in real time and be able to like turn one persona into another persona. And it made me think of this... um, uh, it was like a decade ago, we were, it was a, a very sort of like rough time at Second City because the founders were starting to pass away, like in succession. And a lot of other people were sort of, and you were like, there was a sense of like, oh, what's going on here? And we were developing a show and one of the actors, uh, wife was pregnant. Um, and she sadly had a miscarriage during the process. Um, and he and another actor, he, he pitched this idea to this other actor and he's like, are you sure you want to do this? And he's like, yeah, I want to try it out. And I, I was there as they had done it a couple of times and I had, 
it was preview, so I hadn't been to the show a while. And I sat down and the producer uh, of the show at the time sort of grabbed my hand when this, the scene was about to start. And it was um, him meeting his son in heaven. Mm. And it was beautiful. And it was funny. And you could sense the audience like they knew it was funny. They also knew something real was going on there. And we're sobbing in the back, right? But but and and they kept it in the show. And I remember going up to the actor and sort of saying, like, how how do you do this? He's like, It's my therapy. It's the thing I yeah. need to do each night because I just don't it's I'm not gonna not think about it. And if I can have that conversation and shift it a little bit and see where where that might go, because while the shows are, are are improvised towards script, there's some room for them to play in night night in and night out. And I was like, wow, I, I don't know if I would have the sort of bravery to do it in front of the audience, but that's that was his reality yeah. and his way of coping. And it lent itself to this really sort of authentic and, and beautiful exploration that, of course, most of the audience didn't know the particulars, but I their response showed me that they understood something they else. They felt going it. On. Yeah. yeah. Well, it. I mean, that is a bit of what I chose to do with my book in chapter one. I talk about this really painful experience that I had of losing my father in this really impossible decision I had. Uh, um, he was dying in California. I live in the Boston area. And I went out there for a week when he was um, very, very ill. I also went out because my sister had just had her baby. And I was all of a sudden confronted with, he. while I was out there, he went into a semi-coma. He was in hospice. He was going to die. But I was expected back in Boston to relieve my mother-in-law, who had flown out to cover my three kids' care because my husband also works full-time. It was just a mess. And I could not decide, what do I do here, right? Like, I could stay and be a good daughter and you know, stay, uh, keep vigil over my dying father, be there for my siblings and my mother who was devastated. Or I could go home to my three tiny little kids who really needed me, my son who was turning nine, who was waiting and planning for this day all year, my husband who had a new job that he was afraid of losing, and my mother-in-law who needed to go back to her home. And it was like an impossible decision. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the point at which values really are so critical because I can't get to that top of that mountain. Like it's not possible. It was an impossible situation. There was no good outcome. And I still needed to make a choice. Even not making a choice was making a choice. Mm -hmm. And so the values clarification that I did in that moment was to ask what my father, what I think my father would have wanted me to stand for. So questions like that are really helpful because again, they help you transcend the pain, but it doesn't undo the pain. You still have to live with it, but it gives you something to stand for. Um, the other thing that I was going to say is, I decided to write about this because I didn't know what else to do. So I can really yeah. relate to your colleague, your friend. And it was, it felt like a strange choice to kind of share this really painful moment, but it did. It, it felt strangely therapeutic. Like here's something I can do. I can make meaning from this impossible, painful thing where I really doubt my own morality and the choices that I'm making and really communicate that this is such a universal experience. I know that I'm not alone. I know partly because I'm a therapist and I study these things, but I also, I just know that this is a part of life and it, it sucks, but we can find a way to get through it using values. But the, and, and I think more broadly, and you ended up going home to your son um, and, you know, as a dad, good choice. Like, I know, I know that's, I mean, that's, that's all you want for your kids is like, you know, do the right, do the right thing as you see it, be happy. And then, you know, I don't have grandkids hopefully yet. Uh, but you know, I, I would imagine that's even a, a bigger pull. Um, 
but this this idea and, and this is the thing i discovered when my daughter got sick and then passed away was by sharing the story so at that point a, a caring bridge blog but then i public speak all the time and you know i talk about them, i can't i can't not <laughs> this was so hugely important so devastating and and so and was going to affect everything going forward um and then the the byproduct of that by sharing was so many other people opening up and they don't share and and that's the thing that i discovered through this whole thing which is like so many people are holding these pains this these tragedies these other things because either they're embarrassed they don't think people care they don't want to and like no 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 we all care i mean we all care in a number of ways uh in in sort of the most shallow way like we love stories and mm-hmm. and we and we love be- people and see how they they can survive uh, uh uh tragedies and 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 all of that and you talk about in the book about how how powerful stories are and that's just one element of it and the other part is just sort of we have a shared humanity, everyone, and 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 what what we know, or increasingly, literature is showing us the dis- disastrous effects of suffering at work when we don't address these things. Like you want reduced productivity, you want uh, uh, reduced morale. All, all those things is when you don't address this. And so, enlightened workplaces, and I think I work at one mostly. We're not perfect, but in this case, we're very good. Is like. What's going on? Like, and, and we're here for you. If it needs to be crying, if it needs to be laughing, if it needs to be, that's all fine. And again, yeah. it's a theater. So it's like, there's that going on anyway, uh, in many regards. But I think that's, I, I really enjoyed you sharing that because it's like, it's an evidence-based book that is not afraid to talk about the personal, because that's kind of what it's all about. It kind of is what it's all about. I mean, it's how we connect. I mean, what I love about psychology is that it really is, you know, personal and science, at least you know, certain pockets of psychology, not all of it, of course, but those are the parts that I like right. where it really combines this human element with, with what we understand about what helps people thrive in life, even in the face of terrible circumstances of terrible loss as as you know, well, you know, we, it's not like talking about it undoes the loss of your daughter, but it, it helps bring some healing and brings in its own way, a growth that wouldn't otherwise have been available. Does that make it okay? Absolutely not. But you can make meaning out of that pain point, out of that, you know, insurmountable experience that you've had, you can still move forward and things will look different, but there is, there are possibilities in the future. And I'll say the other thing was uh, the ability to, um, lean on my people. So it wasn't just Anne and I leaning on each other or Nick and, and, you know, the, our unit, it was that we had this larger community ever expanding community. And I'd love you. I, we've talked about, there's been, it's come up uh, at least once before, but it's that university of Virginia study where they take uh, uh single people uh, and then duos to a hill. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I love this so, study. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, this is, this has entered the Kelly Leonard keynote. Just it, it's, it's partly your fault. Uh, so <laughs> tell us about that study. All right. So this was a study where they had people, they, they took people that were passing by a hill and, and so, okay. The, the outcome of interest was to ask people what their perception of the hill steepness was, which is kind of like a funny random thing. But what they found was that folks who were alone on a hike, towards this hill, judged a hill, the hill, as steeper than folks who had a friend with them. Moreover, in this, in the second phase of this study, even folks who imagined a friend versus didn't imagine a friend judged the hill 
as less steep. So in summary, when you feel socially connected, the challenges ahead of you, <laughs> the real physical, like legitimate, there is a, a steepness that is real, but you'll judge it as less steep if you are feeling socially connected, socially supported. So our perception of challenges help uh, when we feel a sense of connection, our challenges feel more tolerable. We feel like we can tackle whatever is before us. And that is so p- important in parenting, right? Because as you're kind of alluding to, we live in this really individualistic culture where, you know, if you suffer a great loss, you're supposed to like pretend like everything is fine pretty soon after with this sense of like, oh, nobody wants to hear about it or think about it or talk about it. We're also expected to parent, which is one of the hardest jobs in the world on our own, right? We're expected to be able to do that, to be intensively, be carting our kids around, making sure that they get all the experiences that a healthy kid should have, making sure that they're happy and fulfilled and feeling connected and responded to, oh, by the way, we're also supposed to work. And by the way, we're not supposed to talk about how hard it is or ask for help. Mm -hmm. And it does not work that way. We are not wired that way. And in fact, uh, anthropological research shows that we are really wired to do what's called alloparenting, to parent in groups. And that is what it is to be human. That is a part of what works well for us is to engage an an entire community of support in raising our kids, not only because it's better for us, right? We have more resources available if we're not on the hook for supporting small people 24-7, like our kids are going to be healthier and safer. Not only that, but like we can't teach them everything because we don't know everything. So if you engage other caregivers, they'll have things to teach your kids that you won't have to teach them. Moreover, they'll have things to teach you. I mean, we have this idea, for example, that mothering should be totally intuitive. It is not. It is a learned skill like everything else. For example, studies on nursing mothers show that when nursing mothers have close people to them who can show them how to nurse, they're much more likely to learn how to nurse. It's it's not a skill. It's not, intu- sorry, it is a skill. It's not intuitive. Mm-hmm. So engaging a group of support not only makes the challenges more tolerable, more surmountable, it, it really helps us to actually tackle them in more effective ways. You just made me remember this. I hadn't thought about this in a while. When my dad died and he was very close with my son, Nick, who was really upset and and you know you you do what you can in in terms of that thing uh that that particular situation and i remember i got a call from ben thornwalp so the music that is the intro and the outro of the podcast is by jukebox the ghost one of my it's so good i love it they're they're great i always (laughs) say that they're sort of ben folds meets queen and so if that oh i see that yeah totally you're like okay so it's very like you want to oh yeah no 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 and 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 my kids love love them and and then I, i become friends with the band and after my dad died ben called me and it's like do you should i talk to nick because i lost my granddad very same age and was really i go that would be amazing goes all right what's his number and i remember nick comes around like ben just called me and talked to me for a half hour and it just meant so much that someone would reach out to him just to like what are you thinking what what can i i'm going to tell you some stuff that i felt and it was like it was more than we could do because yeah. of course he just like we did we've given what but we're also grieving and we're, we're like uh, trying to you know muster our way through this stuff and so that idea of and this is part of the mindset that you talk about and, and the idea of can you make yourself open to the universe to accept the help that potentially can come your way and that doesn't mean you have to be this you know glass house for everyone but it's it's also cultivating your communities 
And I remember we, we interviewed a professor from the University of Michigan who's like, you know, you have, you have your close ties and your dormant ties and your weak ties and all that. And it doesn't matter. They're ties. And, and, and don't think just because you have a dormant tie that they're not going to care or be able to reach out. And that's been my experience. It's like, oh, I haven't talked to you in three years. What's going on? Like, yeah. I care. Um, yeah. And that's not the way we're oriented culturally, I don't think. Totally. And in fact, I mean, I think that there's such a prevailing guilt complex that we have all bought into that it's a bad thing that working parents, for example, need to engage daycare. I know I felt it when I first became a working Mm -hmm. parent, like, you know, a good mom should be available. I shouldn't just pass my kids off to a stranger. But actually, if you rethink that as a pressure to engage what is actually a very helpful support system, I mean, that sort of assumes high quality, safe uh, child care, which is yeah. not a given for lots of people. But if you can connect with high quality child care, it doesn't have to be your grandparents. That turns out to be quite good. Research shows that that's quite good for kids and quite good for parents. And so rather than feeling guilty about needing to install additional supports because you can't do it all because you have other obligations than parenting. And by the way, I actually think stay at home parents should do this too, because it's better for them, even though they don't have uh, official work outside of the home because it's just that intense to do this whole parenting thing. But it is good for us. It's good for us and good for our kids. So when that guilt narrative crops up because it's so culturally embedded, we can notice it and say, actually, the research suggests that this is quite good for me and my child. And that guilty cultural myth is not something I need to buy into. I can notice it and and turn to what the science says, which is that this is quite good for me and my children to have more caregivers involved. And I think you you brought this up just a second ago, but like the the book mentions time and time again that that you know this isn't t- talking about people who have sort of are victims of systemic um, misogyny, racism. Um, you you've got this terrible prison society that's going on. All these different things that make people trying to sort of self-actualize and make that that much more difficult. And I think we can think of aspirational people like Nelson Mandela, you know, but but the reality is there there are people who just are that that is beyond their their ken in in what they're able to do in um what is quite an unfair um lopsided uh um situation we find ourselves. I, I don't think that's that's just the United States of America. I think that's across the the world unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. And that is true. And, and so the, w- the way that I talk about this in the book, because I, I do think it's really important to recognize that there are systemic forces that are simply out of our control and, and we do need to fight for change. That is something we need to do. I sort of see it as like the outside in and the inside out approaches. And what I'm, um, offering is this more inside out approach. These are things that you can do on a day to day basis to make the tension between your roles work a bit better for you using what we know from psychology and use and other social sciences that doesn't absolve us and and you know the systems in place from making forward progress like there's only so much we can do in an inhumane environment like there just isn't like it uh, i talk about like victor frankl who writes about you know what it was like to be in a concentration camp like there's only so much you can do if you feel like you're living in a concentration camp you can have a good attitude but if you're going to be murdered in a gas chamber like it's not, not going to carry you so far so we need to change the systems. But what I think is really helpful about the the inside out approach is that it can help us to sustain our energy, to fight for greater justice, to fight for more humane systems um, by pointing to, by, by sort of like helping us clarify, like what are the parts that we should fight for and what are the parts that we should just accept? For example, 
there there will be tension between roles, no matter how humane the system. I actually live in a very privileged situation where I have a supportive partner. I have a job I love with colleagues who are quite supportive and flexible, and I still feel that tension. So there's something that's very human about being pulled between roles. We don't, it, it doesn't serve us well to expend our energy fighting against that. It does serve us well to fight for, for example, family leave for everybody, for right. those who have young children or sick family members. Like that would be more humane. So there are things that I think we need to accept and learn to how to manage using psychological tools. And then there are things that we really need to use our energy to really push for reform in the structures that we live inside of. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. But before we do that, I kind of want to double click on something that that's uh, talked about in the book and, and relates to uh, a podcast we had a while ago with a ex-Hindu monk, Dandapandi. And he had a, a statement in his book, and this has stuck with me. And he he says, you are where you put your awareness. Mm-hmm. And it was just so like I don't know one of those sort of lightning bolts of like oh, oh okay and when I know and and you talk about in the book too about where you're putting your attention and 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 this idea of, of, of again we talked about mindset um, and framing hugely important uh, but uh, when you understand that the, your core you are where you put your attention it's a huge gift to be able to then sort of be able to luxuriate in these variety of places you find yourself. And that is as a, as a working person, as a parent, as a human, as a partner, you know, all, again, we've talked about in, in Irvin Goffman's many selves and is stuff that I really uh, click to because of the theatrical analogy also written in 1959, the year that second city uh, opens its doors, lot, lot going in the water. <laughs> Because <laughs> also, all, you know, all the Second City guys came out of University of Chicago, and and that's when Paul Tillich is there and uh, Reinhold Niebauer. I mean, it's the, like it's wow, such a rich history. It's everyone, yeah. right? Right. So, I want you to talk a little bit about that that idea of um, of attention and, and sort of the spotlight uh, as as a way to sort of I don't think it's master so much as maneuver uh, through these these cells. Yeah, I mean, attention. I think you're pointing to something that is. It's this tool that we have in our toolkit that we do have control over. We can choose where we put our attention. And similarly, I, I have this quote that I absolutely love from William James, who was one of the you know earliest psychologists. And he says, it's very similar to the quote that you just shared, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Right. So where we place our attention has a lot to do with how we experience things. So we can, I mean, it's, it's very similar to like, is your glass half full? Is your glass half empty? It's like, what part of the glass of the water are you paying attention to the emptiness or the fullness? And I mean, as, as we just talked about, right. If you're, if your environment is extremely toxic and inhumane, it's hard to find something to attach to, but largely by and large, I think, you know, probably for most people listening to this podcast, we can probably attach to something that we can experience pleasure in or make meaning out of. And in other words, we can, as the way that I write about this in my book is we can spotlight the stars, right? So sometimes we want to make improvements in our relationships, our work situations, and in how we parent and and reduce sort of the space between what we want and and what we have and that's useful i think we need to do that but sometimes we can we can also just shift our attention to like what is going well and that's a part of happiness practices that have been studied and found to be quite effective like if we can bring our attention and really ex- 
experience some gratitude and savor this practice of savoring what is going well, which requires us to be mindfully present and really in the moment and really uh, noticing what feels good, what what's what we appreciate, then that really amplifies our positive uh, emotions. And that is something, of course, that we want. And what's nice about that is when we feel good, we tend to perform more skillfully in the roles that matter most to us. And so that doesn't, what, what's cool about this too, is that this idea of spotlighting what's going well, you can like find something quite small. So even if mm-hmm. on balance, you don't love your job, you could probably find something that you appreciate about it. You know, even if it's that I get an income that supports my family, um, even if you're having a super tough time with your kids, you can probably spotlight some something that you appreciate about them or that you appreciate about yourself for being some a parent who kind of sticks with them by and large, even if it's not in that exact moment um, that you can feel proud of. And so that's kind of the making meaning when things are hard is like you kind of highlight uh, a meaning in the suffering, right? That like, here's something I'm learning. Here's something I can grow from. Here's a way that I can use this experience to relate better to others. So that's making meaning. You can also spotlight these pleasant experiences. So like the more sensory experience of like, you know, it feels really good to hug my kid at the end of a long day when I'm super exhausted. So you kind of tap into the positive, pleasurable experience or when I go to work, oh, it's so nice that there aren't, you know, dirty dishes in the sink. And I really appreciate the quiet and the ability to read an email from beginning to end, even though, oh my God, I have meetings stacked back to back and and I could really use, you know, a trip to Tahiti right now. You bring your attention to the part that feels good and and really allow yourself to savor it. Again, that doesn't undo the parts that are hard, but it gives you an opportunity to feel good about what you can feel good about, which again, helps you to build towards, um, you know, more happiness, which which is something that can help you do well in the roles that you care about. I do advocate for trips to Tahiti, though, if you can make it work them into. <laughs> uh, this also this is why I love theater, uh, because uh, I think uh, in poetry as well, because they can sort of express these ideas in different formats that allow you to sort of really um, ruminate in a good way, marinate, I'll say, in, inside these ideas. Uh, Lynn Nottage's play Clyde's, which we saw at the Goodman Theater not, not too long ago, um, is... Uh, a roadside diner, very depressing. It's all ex-cons led by an ex-con and everyone is sort of like broken in a certain way. And there's one guy uh, who uh, is there and all he wants to do is make the perfect sandwich, a variety of sandwiches. <laughs> and, they, and these descriptions, of these, I remember my son went to it first and my wife turns to me and she goes, I know why we, why Nick liked the show because it's about sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> but but he, 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 he delights in this and then you sort of realize it's not, just about the sandwich. It's about taking these sort of dire, sad circumstances you're in and how can you find ways to, to flourish and find meaning in art and soul and, and, and all of that. Um, and it was really like one of those things where we're talking about the whole way home and suddenly you're parked in front of your house, like, how, how'd we get here? Um, yeah. and, and those, and, and, and again, those, those, those metaphors, those, those ideas, they're out there. They're not, there's clinical ways of expressing them, but there's other ways of expressing them. Um, and what I'd love, we're going to, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. Uh, and, Wait, but and, can you first tell us what the perfect sandwich has in it? It's not no. one sandwich. There are so many. Okay. It talks about like the perfect All right. Well, that's individual differences right there, right? Bacon and <laughs> tomato and other, and, and the way, and everyone's sort of, yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. And, 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 um, and very much the, the actually, what, I can't give away the ending of the play. That would be cruel. Uh, but it really is an unusual 
you know, sort of like, oh, it leaves a lot open in terms of where were they really? And, you know, is it on this plane? Is it on another plane? And is there a perfect sandwich? And there probably isn't, but there are the attempt. That's an existential question right there. It is. Yes. Why not make it about a sandwich? But, (laughs) but to, to your point, it's like, I, I have yet to meet perfection and, um, uh, and I've produced brilliant work with brilliant performers, Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Amy Poehler, Seth Meyers, but that, that people be like, oh, that's perfect. Like, no. And none of them would say it's perfect. And mm-hmm. so this, this, but the pursuit of that and the drive towards that to me is a far, I, I, cause I don't know what the other looks like. Cause I don't think it exists. The perfect, the perfect 10 maybe exists in a couple of different art forms and not in mine. Yeah. I don't know if it does in yours. I don't. No, definitely not. And it and it does not exist in parenting, that's for sure. <laughs> no, there are no perfect tense. All right. Uh, yes and story. Do you think you got one? Sure. I'll, I'll give a yes and story for my kids. And I, I'm not sure this is a perfect yes and story, but this was something that happened last week when I had a late meeting and, you know, cue all the working parent guilt because I had to ask a neighbor to take my kids home and it was a long day for my kids and I was going to, you know, I ignore them a lot and I'm going to ignore them for a long day yet again because I have um, interviews for trainees for uh, the university that I work at that have been really time consuming as of late. And so I did the best I could and I left a note for my kids on the door. I mean, and they're little. My youngest is in kindergarten and my middle is in fourth grade. And so I, I said, there's a snack. I'll be down in an hour. I'll see you soon. Love ya, mom. And it was so cute because they yes anded me. By the time I got out, they had left me a note that was a treasure hunt to find them. And it was so cute because they met my note instead of just ignoring me or being annoyed and like, you know, checking out of our parenting really parent child relationship because I wasn't there for them. They engaged with me and left me this little treasure hunt. The first one said like, you know, here's a note and take it with you to find us where we usually uh, get our energy out when we're inside. So I went down and I found the next note and then they left another note that was a clue for where they were outside. And they had so much fun. And my oldest child, who's in middle school, had gotten home by then and he got into the fun and like tried to trick me and mislead me as to where they were. And it was just so sweet that it was this guilty working parent moment that turned into an opportunity for them to engage with me, to yes and me and be super creative creative, turn their boredom into a fun activity. And I was so proud of them. And I was kind of proud of myself for not falling too far down the guilt rabbit hole and and really seeing it as an opportunity. That idea of gamifying is so powerful. Uh, And I don't think I would have known that without the decades here of sort of stripping it back and going like, we're playing children's games. That is the root of all, all this work. And then, and then what we know, right, is as we get older, uh, whether it's education or work, they just, you know, kill the game inside of you. They like that's, that's play and games. And why would that be important? And then what we know if there's research around this, which is like, it's hugely important for us to sort of, you know, maintain our ability to be curious and divergent thinkers and, and, um, and then mind wandering, the gift of mind wandering. Um, and that's just, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, from the ivory tower to future HR departments, that that'll be something that, you know, CEOs will understand is, is you want, you want great performance out of your workers, let them play. Let them play. Yeah. Let them play. Yeah. Let them have fun. And 
you know, note to all the listeners out there, like bring that into parenting. Like instead of guilt, make it fun and funny. Like whatever isn't going well, see if you can find the humor in it. It makes everything so much more fun and palatable and meaningful. The book is called Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. Yal Schoenbrunn, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive